The first reading is Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. And if you're in the Bible, that's on page 1,386. If you're following along in the leaflet, the order is in reverse. <laughs> so if you look under section 3 in the leaflet on the right-hand side, uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The second reading is Matthew 16, starting at verse 13, and that's on page 1,398, if you're in the Bible, or on the bottom left on the inside of the leaflet. Matthew 16, at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now the final passage is Matthew 28, uh, starting at verse 16, and that's on page 1422, if you're in the Bible, um, or that middle section on the left-hand side of the leaflet. Matthew 28, starting at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thanks, Ali. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for uh, your word. Thanks that it's been written for us. We pray that um, this morning you would uh, teach us more of what it means uh, to live for uh, your kingdom's um, glory. Um, because your son is worthy of all praise. Amen. Okay, well, can, you ask, uh, can I ask you please to take out the handout, open it up to the inside. You'll see the passages that Ali's just read for us there, as well as some notes that will help you follow along uh, what we're going to talk about in this last of our series on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's for the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Um, interestingly, that line is not in the Lord's Prayer uh, in Matthew's account or in Luke's either. Um, it's been added in when we pray it, in many ways, as the perfect recap, I think, of the first and primary request in the Lord's Prayer, 
Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, this last line is all about the advancement of God's glory and of God's interests before our own. And that seems like a pretty good way to finish our series. It brings us full circle. Now, throughout this series, we've had readings from Matthew, and of course, we've gotten to Matthew 28 with that last reading, the end of his account of Jesus' life. But that actually just sets up the beginning of our story and uh, what is famously called by Christians the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Uh, I'm going to make just a few brief comments on this passage. You'll see there on the left-hand side. Let me read it again and let me say a few things. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Well, just a few brief comments. Firstly, uh, notice how it starts in verses 16 and 17. Um, It starts actually with a really interesting observation that even after the resurrection, some of the first 11 disciples still doubted. Isn't that interesting? Even after the resurrection, even as they're standing there looking at him, still we're told some of the first 11 doubted. And actually, in some ways, I find that very reassuring, very comforting. It says that you don't have to be 100% doubt-free to be a disciple of Christ. You don't have to be 100% doubt-free to be a disciple of Christ. Well, look at verses 18 through 20. Here's Jesus' primary command to his first disciples. And you'll see that there on your handout, I've put it in bold, just so it's really obvious. Jesus' primary command to the first disciples is... Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. That is, Jesus' primary command to his first disciples is to make more disciples. And again, what's interesting is that he gives exactly the same command to all of the disciples, whether they're fully on board with him or whether they're still doubting. He still says, make disciples of all nations. Now, of course, you and I, we weren't there at that initial commissioning service. And yet, clearly, what Jesus says carries forward to you and I today. Because the task of making disciples of all nations, it's incomplete. In many ways, the Great Commission should probably be called the Great Ongoing Commission. Because we're not there yet. Uh, Or to put it slightly differently, according to Jesus, and I printed this there on your handout, It's not enough to simply be a disciple of Christ. We are to be disciple-making disciples of Christ. We are to be disciple-making disciples of Christ. And if you're wondering, how do you make disciples then? Well, actually, Jesus will say there's three different ways, and they're all listed there in verses 18 through 20. These are the underlined bits. So the primary commission, make disciples of all nations. That's in bold. The underlined bits, this is the how... Go, baptise and teach. Go, baptise and teach. That's how we make disciples of all nations. And uh, we're going to spend some time a little bit later reflecting on how we're going at that particular task. Well, the final thing to say from Matthew 28, uh, this is the last few words in verse 20. Notice how he finishes. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. If the charge to make disciples of all nations feels daunting, 
What's reassuring is that Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us. He's with us in all our doubts and all our certainties. He's with us when we succeed or when we fail. Jesus is with us. He is the one who will be there to ensure that our Father in heaven's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth and his name will be hallowed. So, the big idea, each week I've tried to give you a big idea for these talks. The last big idea there on your handout, halfway down, is to reflect on the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours down forever. The big idea, we belong to God's global mission task force. We belong to God's global mission task force. Now, the Great Commission here that we've seen, it's not an afterthought from Jesus. Uh, It's not as if his mission on earth failed, so at the end, in Matthew 28, he's forced to hand over responsibility to his disciples to complete the project. I mean, that'd be pretty grim if that was his only strategy, wouldn't it? Actually, all along, Jesus' plan has been to build his church. And so, you'll see there, point one, Jesus says, I will build my church. This is the second reading that Ali brought to us from Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Here, his disciples have finally worked out who he is. They confess that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Uh, To which Jesus says in verse 18, I tell you that you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There are, I think, two reasons why God's global mission task force is, and I printed this there on your handout, why it's the greatest movement and enterprise the world has ever seen. God's global mission task force is the greatest movement and enterprise the world has ever seen. A couple of reasons. Firstly, it's longevity. It's longevity. As you know, kingdoms rise, empires fall. But after 2,000 years... This task force is still going strong in one continuous unbroken chain from those first disciples through to us today. And we'll reflect more on the state of play later, but its longevity, I think, is one of the reasons why this is the greatest movement and enterprise the world has ever seen. The other reason, second reason, its inevitability. Its inevitability. You see, in Matthew 16, Jesus says he will not fail. He will not fail. And the certainty of his success, it's guaranteed by his resurrection from the dead. Which I think is just the most wonderful, liberating relief. I mean, why wouldn't you want to get on board with this movement, with this enterprise, with this task force? This will never fail. And I don't don't know about you, but as I think about my life, whether I'm imagining it still stretching out before me or if it's largely behind me in the rearview mirror, what I want to know is that I've thrown my lot in with something or someone who is destined to succeed. I want to know that what I did with my life is not futile and that it will last. Jesus says he'll build his church and nothing will overcome him. This is the greatest movement and enterprise the world has ever seen. Now, let me acknowledge, of course, that the making disciples of all nations, uh, it, well, it's, it's hard work. 
disciple-making has never been easy. Uh, There's a couple of reasons why. Uh, One reason why it's never been easy, well, I've already spoken about the longevity of the task. Uh, The flip side of Jesus sending out the first disciples 2,000 years ago, but still needing more to go, is that obviously the mission is still incomplete. It is hard work making disciples of all nations. But the other reason why it's hard is because despite the inevitability of Jesus building his church, we will face opposition along the way. We will face opposition along the way. Sometimes that opposition is direct and head-on. Christians have, for 2,000 years, always faced suffering and persecution for their faith. I think that's the reason why we're taught to pray, deliver us from evil. But sometimes that opposition is indirect because there are alternative discipleship-making programs out there. There are alternative discipleship-making programs out there, hence why I think we're taught to pray, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Now, probably sitting there thinking, what do you mean by alternative discipleship-making programs? What are you talking about? Well... Our world offers so many other ways for us to use our life. So many other ways to use our life. Now, there might not be spokesmen for those ways. There might not be gurus. There might not be formal courses that you have to enroll in. But there are alternative programs out there which are appealing to us to become disciples. They are alluring and they are everywhere. Let me give you some examples of what they say. You must be true to yourself. You should always live life to the full. Family always comes first. We need to save our planet. You must achieve financial independence. All of those are alternative discipleship-making programs. Now, don't get me wrong, those things aren't necessarily bad. I mean, that's probably why they're so appealing to us. But the thing is that when most of the 8 billion people around us have signed up for those alternative discipleship-making programs, as Christians, it's pretty tempting to just fit in, to not rock the boat, to assimilate, to be assimilated, to not stand out as different, let alone to seek to convert others to Christ's discipleship-making program instead. What that means then is that discipleship, disciple-making disciples of Christ, we are on a collision course with the world around us. Actually, we cannot and we will not ever just fit in. You'll see a quote there at the bottom of your page. Now, I've, um, throughout this year, I've been recommending books that you should read and hearing back complaints about how much it's costing you. Too bad. Um, Here's the book for this week. It's the last one for the year. It's called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. Uh, It's written by uh, an Australian pastor from Western Australia, a guy called Stephen McAlpine. It won the Christian Book of the Year last year. Excellent book. Here's what he says, printed there on your handout. 
Christians are citizens of a new city while remaining part of the old city. Christians are citizens of a new city while remaining part of the old city. He's pointing out that actually we never really quite fit in because we belong to something else. And I suppose here's a thought for you to reflect on. It's seditious to pray for another city to prosper than the one you live in. And that means that even though it would be so much easier, so much simpler, so much safer actually to withdraw uh, and just to hold out for the one to come, we'll never be able to fulfill Christ's commission to make disciples of all nations if we will not be part of them as well. You cannot make disciples from a distance. Still, the encouragement, I think, for us is that if you're a Christian, you are a disciple of the resurrected King who, to use a phrase, is on the right side of history. A King who is with us to the very ends of the age. King who says that he will build his church and nothing will prevail against him. And that means that even though conflict and struggle and hardship is both assumed and expected, it will be worth it in the end. Because God's glorious cause is noble, it is honourable, and it will succeed. And that, I think, is something that's worth signing up for. Something worth living for. Something even worth dying for. You'll see a slide on the screen behind me. Um, it's a copy of Ernest Shackleton's job advertisement that he placed in 1913 for his expedition to the South Pole, uh, to Antarctica. As a famous advertisement he placed in a newspaper in England. Listen to how he tried to recruit for his task force. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, Constant danger, safe return doubtful. Honour and recognition in case of success. How's that for a job advertisement? Apparently there were 5,000 applicants. If you look on your handout on the right side, what I thought I'd do for a few moments is talk about our mission task force. Um, talk about our report card for 2022 as we get to the end of this year, what's it been like to be part of a community that's on about disciples, making more disciples? Uh, don't forget, of course, that 12 months ago, this time last year, uh, the state borders were, had just reopened for the first time in a couple of years, and a new level of COVID restrictions were about to land. Now, if that all feels like a lifetime ago, then what we need to hear is that Jesus' 2,000-year-old plan to make disciples of all nations, well, it's continued to advance. Even COVID hasn't, been, hasn't overcome his church. So I thought I'd talk for a few minutes about how we've seen this play out at Trinity Church Adelaide, and I thought I'd use the categories that Jesus uses in Matthew 28 of going, baptising and teaching to make disciples of all nations. So firstly, going. Uh, you'll see a slide on screen behind me. Uh, as you know, earlier this year in February, uh, we sent 150 people to three new church plants. 
especially Trinity Church at Mile End, which, in case you've forgotten, it actually was born out of our overflow gathering that we had to start when capacity constraints meant that we couldn't meet here at Trinity City. I don't know how you felt back in February, but if you were nervous that this would be a major setback, that this wasn't the best time to be sending lots of people away, even as we were trying to recover from COVID, then... In that very same month that we sent 150 people, we had 156 first-time visitors in our church on Sundays. Now, if you're wondering, how do I know so precisely that there were 156 first-time visitors? Well, who will ever forget check-in and those labels that we had to print? Remember those things? Never again, I promise you. They were terrible. So, going. What about baptising? Oh, next slide, thanks. Uh, Despite all the challenges of 2023, uh, a couple of weeks ago I reported back to you that this year we've had 60 people participate in our Explore Outreach course. Uh, We've had 15 baptisms, 11 of them in our Two Commitment Sundays this year. What I want to say this week is actually since then we've had another Explore course conclude just on Tuesday night this week with 10 more people who aren't yet believers participating and still considering Christ. But perhaps the most encouraging story I can share with you is that just a few weeks ago, we had another baptism in our Mandarin gathering. This came about because a 31-year-old woman who was a former member of the Mandarin gathering died in tragic circumstances a few months ago. And her parents, who aren't believers, had flown out from China. Uh, as Bunyong and his team in the Mandarin gathering loved them with the love of Christ, so the father turned to Christ and was baptised just days before he returned home. Now we pray to make disciples in a part of the world most of us will never get to. Go, baptise. Third area, teaching. Next slide, thanks. Uh, Over the course of this year, we've had over 100 newcomers come to our Belong membership course. This is for those who are new to us, checking us out, trying to work out what it would mean to belong to this church, how to get on board with Christ's plan to make disciples of all nations. Uh, Many of them have now settled into Sunday gatherings and joined growth groups and started serving, seeking to be obedient to everything Christ has commanded us. I want to say that for me personally, Our church family's adoption of next year's budget, I think, is one of the most powerful expressions of our commitment to making more disciples. Uh, Next slide. You'll be sick of this one. I showed you this slide many times. This slide that described the incredible sacrifice that our whole church family has made financially. Next year, a 15% increase in giving in this difficult economic environment because we want to see more church plants to reach our city and because we want to raise up the next generation of ministry leaders to reach the nations for Christ. Uh, Next slide on screen. Uh, How wonderful it is that next year we'll have four new ministry apprentices, one new student minister, seven men and women being equipped to lead God's people wherever he puts them in his world. So that's a bit about our report card for the year gone by. What about the year ahead? What about looking ahead to 2023? 
Well, obviously the big challenge before us is the site redevelopment. Uh, this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to set up future generations so they can keep making disciples from here at 88 North Terrace. As I said, the site redevelopment is scheduled to start by the second half of next year. But whenever it does, and can I say wherever we meet in the off-site phase, what matters is that Jesus said he will build his church and nothing will prevail against him. That's the reason why, in the end, disciple-making disciples aren't particularly bothered about buildings. We're not particularly bothered about buildings. So I'm pretty sure that when Jesus said in Matthew 16, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades won't overcome it, he wasn't too concerned about the ups and downs of the construction industry. And that's the reason why, for this year, most of this year, we haven't talked very much about the site redevelopment, but we've talked a lot more about becoming a more intergenerational, all-age church family. I take it you understand why. One of the reasons is because Jesus has charged us to make disciples of all nations. And given that we probably are not going to finish that task on our watch, it makes sense to ensure continuity for the next generation to carry on this great global mission task force. In many ways, our 6pm gathering, which is launching tonight, it's a foretaste of what we long to see across our whole church, a glimpse of God's kingdom to come. Actually, my prayer over these last few months is that 6pm, as a more intergenerational gathering, it might come to represent the best of both 5pm and 7pm in the decades to come. From 5pm, the faithful, persistent growth in godliness over a long period of time. From 7pm, the incredible opportunity to win that next generation whilst they are still young, their future still largely unwritten, and their potential still limitless. So if that's the report card, point three, how far do we have to go? One of the questions that you might be asking is, if Jesus' commission is to make disciples of all nations, um, how are we going? How are we going at reaching the nations of the world? Or as I've said there on your handout, what percentage of all nations are still unreached? What percentage of all nations are still unreached? Now on screen behind me you should see a slide. Uh, this is from the Joshua Project. The Joshua Project are a great organisation who try and work out the state of the gospel throughout the whole world. Uh, their current estimate is that of the 7.9 billion people in the world, 3.4 billion, or 42%, have insufficient resources or believers to make disciples of their own people groups. 42%. Now, I wonder how you feel when you see those kinds of statistics. Does it feel like we're making progress? And making disciples of all nations? How does it look to you? One of the problems of being a foot soldier down in the trenches is that you don't get to see the bird's eye view that a general has from 10,000 feet. I want you to imagine a drone 
that's high above the battlefield, looking down with a sense of perspective that we on the ground lack. Because here's what the one who says, I will build my church and nothing will overcome it. Here's what he sees from his Father's throne above. Matthew chapter 9, pick it up with me in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When Jesus sees those unreached billions, he sees sheep without a shepherd. He sees people who are lost without him. He sees a plentiful harvest, but a terrible labour shortage. Which is why he says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. When Jesus looks at those unreached billions, when Jesus looks at the crowds, he does so with tender compassion. That's amazing, isn't it? I don't know how you feel when you look at crowds, crowds at the shops, crowds on public transport. After three years of COVID, most of us have been taught to look at crowds with suspicion. Or even without that, we look at crowds with impatience. They are holding me up. Jesus looks at the crowds with compassion. Because this is a king who loves his subjects. This is a king who will lay down his life for his people. That's the kind of monarch he is. One of the biggest events this year was Queen Elizabeth's death. As the whole world, it seemed, mourned a monarch who served her people with selfless devotion for a record 70 years. And I want to say that, yes, she was remarkable. But I also want to say that she will be forgotten. Her name will be lost to future generations. It will be consigned to the dustbin of history. And all that Queen Elizabeth started, it will come to an end. Indeed, many fear her good works will be quickly undone. By contrast, our king's death wasn't the end. It's the beginning. His resurrection is the cornerstone of our hope. It is the reason why we confidently and expectantly live as disciple-making disciples. Because his kingdom will keep growing. And nothing, not even death, will overcome it. So let me finish then with the question on your handout. What part do we play in this great commission? What part do we play in this great commission? Uh, our king, he gives out different missions to different people. Uh, even the individual assignments change over time. So, some of us will go, the rest of us will send. But all of us belong to this global mission task force. Because, one last time, it's not enough to be a disciple of Christ. We are to be 
disciple-making disciples of Christ. And the way in which we get on board, the part that we play, it begins with prayer. We pray, Lord, send out workers into your harvest field. We pray, Jesus, use me to make disciples of all nations, however you see fit. We pray, Father, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and your name hallowed throughout all the earth. And the thing is, as we pray that prayer, what we're doing is declaring before our king for the whole world to see that we are willing to go wherever he sends us, whenever he sends us, to do whatever he asks of us. Don't waste your life settling for less. It is never too late to start or get off the bench. I'm going to finish by, in a moment, giving you just a couple of minutes to reflect Uh, not just on today, but on the whole series um, as we draw it to a close. Uh, You'll see a refresher on the top left of your handout there about different big ideas that we've covered each week uh, before I give you a moment for what you've learned in your response. As we do, I'm going to read uh, just this short quote from J.C. Ryle. It's quoted in Jim Packer's Knowing God, that book that I've been encouraging people to read in the second half of this year, uh, just chapter by chapter. I'm going to read this out, then I'll just pause for some quiet reflection, lest we just race on to the next thing, and after that I'll pray and we'll sing. Follow along with me. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It's not enough to say that he's earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He, sees, he only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offence, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honour or whether he gets shame, for all this the zealous man cares nothing at all, He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he's consumed in the very burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. What I've learnt and my response. Just a couple of minutes of quiet reflection.